This is a podcast from Minute Media. Welcome, everybody, to the Lakers Legacy Podcast, where, baby, tonight, the DJ got him fallen out of the rotation again. So hey. dance, dance like it's the last, last NBA rotation of your life. Go and get the Lakers right. Baby, tonight, I'm your host, Jonathan Hernandez, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tommy Alexander. And happy December. What a freaking Thanksgiving break it's been for the Lakers. What a freaking season it's been. Tommy, did you have a good Thanksgiving? I did, sir. What about you? I had a great Thanksgiving. Had a Friendsgiving and then also had one with the family. Made some halo halo, which is a Filipino dessert that has fruit, condensed milk, and ube. And over the weekend, even got to see BTS live from a suite at the SoFi Stadium. Smooth like butter. What a time. But you know what's not smooth like butter? This Lakers season. Uh, as we are, as we currently record, LeBron James is in health and safety protocols. Omicron's got people screaming, oh, this holiday season. Uh, Vogel continues to say and do the darndest things. The Lakers continue to look as uneven from game to game, quarter to quarter, even as ever. But, but Tommy, DeAndre Jordan was finally benched and replaced with Dwight Howard Avery Bradley's out with a thumb sprain. Hope his thumb is feeling better. Austin Reeves is back. Trevor Ariza's return is on the horizon. And the Lakers finally had a legit blowout game against the Kings after a first half that looked like one of their worst first halves of the season. So we'll get to our gripes, concerns, and worries on this team in a second. But Tommy, let's talk about the positives first. Because there have been, we just have to really uh, scrape for them. Not as recently, though, because last night the Lakers won 117 to 92 versus the Kings. They outscored the Kings 67 to 33 in the second half after giving up 59. Sorry? I was going to say they went on a 40 to 8 run at some point. Yes, they went on a 40 to 8 run from the 915 mark of the third quarter to the 1051 mark of the fourth. Um, And yeah, 67 to 33 in the second half after giving up 59 to the Kings in the first half. During that 40-8 run, they were down 52-66 to initially, then skyrocketed to the lead 92-74 to by the start of the fourth. Now, there's no coincidence that this was all spurred on by no DeAndre Jordan. More focus on offense and shooting with the insertion of Wayne Ellington and Malik Monk, some Carmelo Anthony in there as well, and by the players, just more consistent effort, intensity, and buy-in on the defensive end that kind of buoyed everything. So that's what happened last night. I'll throw out some additional positives and then throw it to you to see um, what you can take away from this recent stretch uh, from the Lakers culminating in that Kings game where we had our first legitimate blowout. I know we had like double-digit leads versus the Cavs and maybe the Rockets, but we still had our starters in to try and close those games out within five minutes where last night it legitimately felt like it was over even by the nine-minute mark of the fourth. So some positives. Record parity around the league, especially the Western Conference. Um, the Lakers are 12 and 11, but they're essentially tied with the Mavericks, who are in fourth place with a 10 and 9 record. That's crazy. Yeah, and they're only three games back of the 12 and 7 third place Jazz. So, I mean, given everything we've had to go through, not a bad place to be in. Although, caveat again, we did have our easiest stretch of the season. Um, we did. I will say this though, before you go on, if, if you don't mind, yeah, we ha- we did have our easiest stretch of the season. But I will say, when I the more and more I like, because I haven't really been paying close attention to the standings because it's depressing. But the more I've looked at the the numbers, right, you start to realize, and you've sort of felt it. The pace of this season has been like unbelievable compared to like a normal season. Like we're playing the same pace we were playing, and, and pace meaning 
the number of games. Like we've played so many games, and we're we must be among mm-hmm. the lead le- uh, league leaders in games played. And so now we get in this weird stretch where it's like we we've, we've been playing on off on off like on off for like the entire month of November. True. Which is crazy, right? And I'm not trying to make excuses because those were still games we should have won. But, like, for a veteran team trying to, you know, with a bunch of older guys who maybe were not put were put into positions that they weren't expecting to be put into in terms of minutes, I don't want to make excuses. But that is a lot, right? And I think we're starting yeah. to see now a stretch where it's like, you know, we play a game on uh, Tuesday, we don't play again till Friday, and then we don't play again after that till Tuesday. You know, so it's like a lot more like long breaks coming now, and and so maybe we'll get into like a little bit of a more normal stretch of scheduling here with the instead of the constant on off. True, that's a good point. And if there was ever a time to, there's never a good time for LeBron James to go into health and safety protocols and test positive for COVID. But if there was ever a time to do that. It's now because, like you said, we don't have as many games in between the next week or so. Uh, Let's do it this way. Maybe you can comment after each positive that I bring up, and then we'll take it to break from there. Uh, Second main positive is Westbrook has been legitimately good for the last, what, three weeks or so now? He's been carrying the team through huge stretches, even though he's had, like, maybe uh, a very uneven quarter, an uneven half, where he's turning the ball over like crazy still or taking bad shots. For the most part, he's made up for it by carrying the team through large stretches and even quarters. Um, <clears throat> in terms of his actual play, he's been attacking the rim like a madman, like a madman, and finishing well. The most encouraging part is he's shown some really good chemistry with Anthony Davis lately. Um, he's taking those baseline three pointers a lot and knocking them down at a really good clip. He's actually 10 of 19 from the three-point baseline, which is great. Um, So if he can keep doing that, that should help him when LeBron James is back again and we can get our big three actually going. Um, That should give him something to do outside of, you know, having the ball in his hands if he continues to space out on the three-point baseline, continue to take and hit that shot. 10 of 19, that's what, 51, 52%? And then even outside of that, as shown in last night's game against the Kings, he's even started cutting off ball more. I think there was that one play where uh, Anthony Davis was in the post and Russell Westbrook sneakily uh, pranced into the lane and got an easy layup off that off-ball cut. So if we can get more of that from Russell Westbrook outside of the fact that he's just, you know, putting up his ho-hum stats of like 25-9-9 and with less turnovers, that will be great. Uh, your quick thoughts on what Russell Westbrook... Russell Westbrook has quietly had a very nice stretch of games like the last few weeks. Okay. And, and it's so easy to hate on this guy. Right. But this Russell Westbrook that we've seen the last few weeks is pretty much to the T exactly what I could have hoped for when we, when we made this trade. And, and by that, I mean, you know, he's taking, he is who he is. Okay. As a player. And you have to take the good with the bad, just like you have to take the good with the bad with every player. LeBron James is maybe the best player in NBA history. And he is probably one of the bigger reasons why we lost that triple overtime game against the Kings, right? Mm -hmm. Just two for 12 from three, hoisting up three after three after three when he wasn't making any the entire game, right? So it's like you have to take the good with the bad with some of these star players. And we've seen it throughout, you know, our times. Laker fans, not every player is perfect. Russell Westbrook's flaws, I will say, are just so sometimes pronounced that it's easy to like very easily easy to pick on him. But if he is able to keep his assists in the three to, or excuse me, his turnovers in the three to four range, continue to attack the basket the way he's been attacking it. Everything else is just gravy. I frankly, I didn't even know this dude had the mid range package that he's kind of shown in some of these games. Like I know we don't necessarily want him to be taking mid range jumpers, but his mid range bank shot is like cash, you know, and his three pointers Again, not like he's not a great shooter for a guard at all. I'm not trying to say he's not even a good shooter for a guard, but if he can hit 30%, you know what I mean? He only takes four a game and most of them are wide open, right? So, you know, it's like those are not necessarily killers. Um, You can live with that kind of stuff. It's really, can he keep his numbers up, specifically the assists, while keeping the turnovers down. He's been able to do that. And the rest of his efficiency has followed. He's competing defensively. I mean, this guy is like exerts so much energy on the offensive end. Some of that I'll talk about in a second, but you know, he, 
he still goes back onto the defensive side and he plays hard. He gets a lot of steals. He gets a lot of anticipation steals, which is nice to see from your guard and, and like it leads to a lot of fast breaks. The one complaint, right? And he has cut back on this. He's a, for a guy who's like average multiple seasons, average a triple double, right? It's like Russell Westbrook is a weirdly selfish player in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that's changing a little bit with this team because he's never been on a team with LeBron people like LeBron James and AD since he was teammates with Kevin Durant and they were like 22 years old at that point. Right. So, um, he's selfish in the sense that I think he, he, I'm not saying he's stat hunting, but I will say that he very clearly sometimes views himself as like the best option of, orchestrating what's going to happen on the court. Okay. And so when he, he puts himself into these situations where he will dribble the ball for, you know, it kind of reminds you of prime Rajon Rondo, right? Where he would just dribble the ball for 18 seconds and then make one pass to a guy for a wide open mid range jump shot. And then, so it's like, he gets the assist, but is that really how you want your like offense to be run? I don't think so, you know? And so, In that kind, in in that sense, he needs to like cut back on those types of things. But I think he already is. He's going to continue to do so. We were told time after time after time that Russell Westbrook, throughout his entire career, has always had really bad first months. And in fact, some people went to, as far as to say he is like not very good until the All Star break, and then at post All Star break, he's like the league MVP, right? And so. Mm-hmm. He's even hit his stride here faster than I would have thought. Um, ten games didn't look like very good at all. Last ten or so games looked, in my opinion, has looked amazing. Um, his effort against the Kings in the like most recent game that you, that we watched is is uh, exactly what we were hoping for on a night where, for whatever reason, be it rest or whatever, LeBron was out, um, and he just took over. He lifted up the team's energy in the second half and he would not back down. And he was just relentlessly attacking the rim. And when he does stuff like that, it hypes everybody else up around him. And, and so I I just, I've been very, very pleased actually with the way that Russ has looked um, the last couple of the last few weeks. Yeah. I think his motor has been undeniable and whether it's this game or even the win against the Detroit Pistons after LeBron got ejected, that's another prime Russell Westbrook example where his motor was just, you know, firing on all cylinders and he helped carry the team. Um, We've seen those examples of why, you know, we traded for this guy. Now it's muddled a lot by kind of what you mentioned where, yeah, Russell Westbrook can put up these amazing stats. We know he can put up stats, but when it comes to the benefit of the team, and James Worthy even said this post-game where he reprimanded all all of the big three, saying this is not team basketball. And I understand this is the nature of having a big three and the nature of being in, you know, sometimes a LeBron James solar system. But look, we what's the point and use of getting creative, offensive, you know, dynamically offensive players like Malik Monk and soon-to-be Kendrick Nunn, THT, we can get to him later, he's struggling right now, but even Carmelo Anthony, etc. if you ball hog in that way and the ball doesn't find energy, you know? I think that's my biggest issue right now, and some of that right. is, you know, you put on Frank Vogel because you watch the Golden State Warriors play and any of these other teams, they're swinging the ball around three, four times, and it yeah. doesn't matter sun, who gets the yeah. assist, and you're just like, dude... Can we not play that way? Or is just is this just the nature of a Russell Westbrook-led, LeBron James-led team? You know what I'm saying? We can get to that on another podcast, but I think it's uh, indicative of Russell Westbrook's nature historically. So if he can give the ball up and learn how to be more effective off ball and allow even a guy like Wayne Ellington to touch the ball so he has a feel for it before he hoists up a shot, you know, because some of these guys are going five-minute stretches of not touching the ball at all, and then they're expected to hit a shot, you know, all of a sudden. So um, if he can continue to share the wealth in that way and not just, again, it's not stat hunting, but not always be so ball dominant, I think that would help a lot greatly. Uh, Other positive, give me 30 seconds on Anthony Davis. People have been upset with his effort and intensity this year. It's been waning, but for the most part, I feel like he's been pretty steady. And if you just rejigger your expectations for this guy, look. Is he a number one guy? I don't think so. Do we wish he was Giannis or maybe even Embiid? Sure. 
To me, I'm perfectly okay with Anthony Davis being this Pau Gasol type guy who you sort of have to awaken the black swan within from time to time. I'm okay with that. Uh, Maybe doesn't bode well for a future post-LeBron, but whatever. Regardless, Anthony Davis is starting to hit his mid-range jump shots. He hit two of two from three versus the Pistons in the game uh, on Sunday. He's shooting a Lakers career best in the regular season of 51.8% currently, and that's with a broken jump shot and his three-point shot not having come around. But with regards to the defense, the defensive stats are there. Maybe you want him to be a little bit more mobile and engaged more consistently. But for the most part, I think this is a pretty good baseline for Anthony Davis to start. What about you? 30 seconds. Yeah, Anthony Davis defensively is right back where he was his first season here, where he was getting some, you know, people were talking about he should, could be defensive player of the year, you know, right around where he's been at, at his peak, really, um, in terms of defensive numbers. One thing that's really uh, I like is is his rebounding has gone up. Um, his rebounding is the highest it's been since, you know, 2018, 2019. Um, oh. He's finally back in double digits, which is fantastic because we're going to be playing smaller and we need him to clean up the glass offensively, right? It's You mentioned that he's shooting 52% or whatever, which is the highest he shot for us um, since we acquired him. But the mid-range, the three-point shot, you hope that gets cleaned up. Um, you hope the free throw shooting gets cleaned up, but this guy is an 80% career free throw shooter. And the last two years, it seems like he just totally like lost the touch there. Right. And it seems like the bulking up as many are speculating over the off season, maybe that'll help him physically, like longevity wise that, so I'm not going to complain about it, but you know, it, it's clearly had an impact on his mechanics, um, and and something is wrong there. So he needs to figure that out. This guy does not need to be uh, Jonas Valanciunas shooting threes, but he needs to be like at least his career numbers, which is thirty percent. The guy is shooting nineteen percent from three. Okay, and and he doesn't take a ton. So if he can hit thirty percent, that at least makes him a threat. If he can at least not be, you know, I mean, I think he's currently the worst player in the NBA shooting from the mid range in terms of guys who attempt more than like two or three shots a game, right? So right. he he is like been really bad. It kind of makes the 52% overall a little more impressive because he's just really killing it yeah. around the rim. Um, I mean, when he is in the, around the rim, he is just destroying people. He's showing the hook shots. He's doing all kinds of things. Um, but yeah, you know, the attitude mentality thing, I don't know. He's always kind of had this this thing, right? And that's why it's like, if I, we talked about this actually very early this season, he's one of these rare stars who, I mean, uh, you know, he doesn't just do in the postseason what he does in the regular season. Historically, he's like way elevated his game in the postseason. And so I think he, you're right in the sense that he's just going to be a guy that, by the way, is still a top 10 player in the NBA during the regular season, you know, over certainly when you factor in both sides of the court. But he's not going to be a guy who's going to score you 30 points a game. I don't think that's, like, how he's wired. Um, and, frankly, I don't think he has the ability to do that, given his lack of perimeter shooting mm-hmm. at this point. But, you know, anyway, I, I think I've been I've been overall very impressed with him, him this season. Yeah, I agree. Um, next positive, second to last positive, um, micro ball, LeBramon green, LeBron at the five micro ball looks stellar, even though Frank Vogel won't deploy it. There are some reasonings behind that, which I actually agree with mainly that it's probably not sustainable as currently constituted. Um, but when we played that micro ball lineup with LeBron at the five versus the Pacers, I mean, that was the most dynamic we've looked on both ends. Uh, We were frenetic offensively and defensively. Again, the question is, is it sustainable for 60 more games? Probably not. But maybe when Trevor Ariza returns, and Vogel's been hinting at this, and if only he'd, you know, start playing Baysmore more, I think that you could probably deploy that lineup um, more effectively and more consistently, especially once LeBron, you know, comes back from health and safety protocols and you have AD there. doesn't matter if you decide to make AD the four and LeBron at the five, but we saw some you know, visions and flashes there of something that could, maybe you don't play it for a full 48 minutes, obviously, but man, we should be seeing this at least one stretch a game, don't you think? We should. And I think it will become part of what we're going to do going forward. It's exciting to watch. Um, It's, 
you know, we need to to create energy with a group like this. And I'm surprised Vogel didn't think of this earlier, but like you need to figure out how are you going to how are you going to get these guys sort of excited about things that they've been doing for 17 years? You know what I mean? And one yeah. way to do that is put guys into sort of different positions, introduce new challenges. Okay. When Luke was our coach and LeBron's first season, there were rumors that we might go to this like LeBron at the five for, for stretches. Right. And frankly, on pay, sustainability to your point is very fair. LeBron is not Draymond Green in the sense that we need LeBron to score 30 points a game and get a ton mm -hmm. of emphasis and do a lot of other things for us. So he cannot guard like the opposing team center on a night in night out basis, but for stretches against bench units, it's, it's, it's fun. Okay. It's, it's fun to see, put him out there. You can tell he's excited. He he's out there like calling out like these defensive reads, like he's doing something he hasn't ever done before. And it's creating this excitement. Everybody is rallying for rebounding because we know we don't have Dwight or, you know, whatever his face is, whose name I can't, I don't want to say on this podcast because he frustrates me. <laughs> you know, what I mean? Like we don't have, or Anthony Davis, like we don't have those guys at the rim to clean it up. So all the guards, like you see them all of a sudden attacking the boards to clean it up. Like the, uh, the other wings are attacking the boards to clean them up. Um, I've been really excited about that lineup and for, you know, five to eight minutes over the course of a game, I think we could do it. Um, Maybe five minutes, but you know it's it's uh it gives the ability to rely less on our other centers, um, play AD at the five, you know more, and you know what you said once we get a reason back, I think that's a good point. Once we get some more big wings, that lineup is going to look even better. Yeah, I agree. So I'm looking to see that unleashed a little bit more consistently over the next month or so. Last positive, big positive, and you hinted at him earlier, Malik Monk. So in the month of November, Malik Monk is averaging 11 points, three rebounds, 2.4 assists on 47% from the field and 37% from three, hitting 1.83s a game. Over the last five games, and this includes his two-point stinker versus Detroit on Sunday, Malik is averaging 14.6 points, 2.8 assists, 4.6 rebounds. And especially in that Indiana game, he's been really crashing the boards and hustling and attacking. And that's been super encouraging to see um, and fighting out there. Uh, over the last five games, 14.6 points, 2.8 assists, 4.6 rebounds, 49% from the field, 42% from three, hitting almost three a game, 2.8 threes. Now, in the six games this season in which Monk has gotten at least 30 minutes, he's averaged 17 points, four rebounds, three assists on 50% from the field, 42% from three, hitting three threes a game. Your thoughts on Malik Monk? Because at times during the start of the season, it was debatable whether he'd even see the floor because of how terrible he was defensively. Part of that you also put on Vogel a little bit because it's like you're just throwing this guy out there to fend for himself and even offensively he has no idea what to do out there if you don't have a system or plan to sort of give him guardrails to follow but again there were times where I was like I don't know if this guy's even going to make it into the rotation and I don't know if he is more than a minimum type player but given all those numbers I just rattled off and when he actually gets some time to find a rhythm it's clear this is not a minimum type player so what are your thoughts on Malik Monk? Because Uptown Monk, going to give it to you. I just wish that Frank Vogel would continue playing him more and stop siphoning minutes off to Avery Bradley. Yes. Well, that last statement really summarizes it <laughs> for me. But <laughs> I think, you know, Monk has been very, very good. Um, he started, you know, strong in the preseason, and he made us all pretty excited. And then he got hurt. And then, you know, not only did he miss, what, four out of the six games in the preseason, but he missed, uh, I can't remember if he was ready opening night, but he was certainly needed some ramp-up time. And then because of that, his October was, I think, very poor, those first five or six games or so. But he's been steadily improving, okay? And to your point, it, you know, it, it looked like, when is Wayne Ellington going to get back? Because even Wayne Ellington, who's not known as a good defender historically must be better than this kid. Right. And it looked like maybe, okay, this kid's a little in over his head. He played his first four seasons with Charlotte up until last year, that team was going nowhere. Right. And, and last year he wasn't even in the rotation consistently. I can't remember if he was injured or what, but he, he didn't play in a bunch of games. Um, 
you know, so maybe some of his deficiencies were masked. I, I don't know. But, you know, all of those kind of thoughts came to head. And then all of a sudden, the last few weeks, you've seen him showing more confidence with the shot, which is huge. Him competing defensively, okay? He is who he is defensively. He's sort of limited by his measurables. He's only 6'3", which is undersized for a shooting guard. But he's been moving his feet and competing. And again, that's all you could really ask is compete. We're not going to be the best team in the NBA defensively this year, most likely, right? So, But we need guys to compete and bring the energy around the three stars, and he's doing that. I think, you know, I don't know if you're going to bring up Wayne, but... One thing that both Wayne and Malik could benefit from is, and Stu talks about this all the time, right, during these the, the, the game broadcast, but when those guys are on the floor, you have to have plays ready to get them looks because you already mm-hmm. know you're giving something up. You already know you're giving something up defensively. So if you're giving something up defensively, you need to be getting something back, ideally something more back offensively. And especially in the case of Wayne Ellington, who's somehow with this wonky season getting like very oddly timed looks, in my opinion, is shooting 40% from three in 15 games. You know, like, and, and that guy, by the way, again, I'll give him credit. He's competing. He's who he is. He's still limited, but he's competing defensively. When he's out there, he needs to, he needs to have looks, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's pointless. He's not there for defense. So if he's there for offense, he only shoots threes. He doesn't shoot any twos. You got to find him for some threes. Okay. And, and so I, I put a little bit of the onus on Vogel to get both of these guys engaged. Um, but that, that said, Malik has a little bit more self-creation ability. And, and so he has looked very good in my opinion, um, the last few weeks. Yeah, I mean, 50% from the field in the games where he averages at least 30 minutes, 49% from the field in the last five games. So he's been uh, a bright spot for sure in these recent last few games and and weeks. Uh, Yeah, we're starting to bleed into our problems with Vogel, so we might as well go there. But we'll get to that after the break. All right, so we're back. We talked about all the positive things and all the silver linings, which are legitimate. But now... I think we just want to talk about how we felt watching these games as a Lakers fan uh, because truth be told, it is just, I feel like a masochist just watching these games because I don't feel good while I'm watching them. I feel even worse after them. And it's just like, I haven't felt this way maybe since the Byron Scott, Ronnie Price days with the Lakers where nothing made sense. And Tommy, it's even worse this year because even when I want to undergo a paradigm shift in my head where I'm like, okay, maybe we're just a bad team. That's okay. Maybe we can tank. I remember that we don't even have our first round pick this year. So there's no benefit to losing. (laughs) So when you watch these games that are so uneven, you win these games and like they're not good wins. You lose these games. They're not good losses. And you're just, it's just been such a slog this season in terms of statistics, currently the Lakers are 22nd in net rating this season, minus 1.7. That's not great. Um, they are 16th in defensive rating with a 107.9 rating, which is actually better than I thought. But I think that's buoyed by last night's win against the Kings, where we held them to, what, 92 points? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we are 22nd in offensive rating with a 106.2 rating, which is inexcusable because we constructed this roster to be an offensive behemoth and we are 22nd in offensive rating um and that's with last night boosting us and i think that's just indicative of the problems that we've seen this season and how i felt as a fan just kind of honestly from game to game grasping for straws for anything sustainable to latch onto that gives me evidence that there might be something outside of we have LeBron James and Anthony Davis that makes this team a contender in my eyes, like a serious contender. I don't care if we're like only two games off from the from the fourth place team. Well, guess what? The Sacramento Kings also are just like, what, two games off from being at our, our spot. You know, they have eight wins. Right. Yeah, I, I don't know how, how you felt. I think to close like my little monologue here, personally for me, this is the worst Lakers season I remember watching in recent history, whether that's the injuries the lack of importance placed on the preseason and the start of the season, um, lack of importance placed on foundational process, it seems like, in general. 
Um, the uneven efforts and lack of mental fortitude from all the players game by game, low basketball IQ plays, disconnected parts, low basketball IQ coaching decisions with personnel deployment, kind of feeling like there's no plan at all. And then when it comes to Vogel, it just feels like he's kind of talking out of his ass sometimes because he's contradicting himself left and right, saying he wants defense and all that. But the stats tell you, okay, Avery Bradley and DeAndre Jordan in your lineup doesn't even help you defensively. So why do you have them out there? Because you know they're not helping you offensively and you don't need the stats to show you that. And then that goes all the way up to the front office, you know, because they kind of shackled him with this, this roster. They gave him DeAndre Jordan. Now, you could probably argue that Vogel should have some balls to not play DeAndre Jordan regardless. But yeah, I place a lot of the blame on the front office for even signing this dude. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, we've defended the Caruso thing in the past because we haven't yet seen Kendrick Nunn, but we are seeing the front office's frugality come into play in the worst possible ways from the Caruso thing to maybe not even outright cutting DeAndre Jordan right now because they guaranteed him to like a full full guaranteed contract, vet minimum contract, um, to maybe they're too cheap to maybe even put pressure on Vogel and dangle that we're going to fire you, Carrot, you know? I don't know if that's what's happening, but you can make those assumptions based off of moves they've made in the past to save some money. So yeah, the front office is also culpable here. And yeah, it's just been a slog to watch this season. It's been frustrating. Um, I haven't bitched and moaned about the product on the court this much since, again, the Byron Scott, uh, Ronnie Price day. So what are your thoughts watching this Lakers team? Yeah, depressing. Um, it feels like a chore, right? It's like you're not excited <laughs> when the games come around. It's like, oh, my God. Because you never really know what you're going to get. And that was the one nice thing, right, about the last couple of years, even last year when we had struggled to make the play-in with all our injuries. You knew the guys were going to compete, okay? Last year... Two years ago, obviously, that was the general result was a win. Um, we were the number one seed in the uh, certainly in the West, and I can't remember if we were the number one seed overall heading into the the bubble. Um, but excuse me, heading yeah, heading into the bubble. So before everything got shut down, um, and we were number one the entire like right from the jump, right? Like right right after the first ten games, we never let go of that. Second season, last season, we. Lost a ton of guys. We didn't have a we didn't have great depth. We had a kind of wonky rosters we were throwing out there at times. We were leaning heavily on like a 19-year-old, 20-year-old in THD to do a lot of stuff with LeBron missing like half the year, AD miss half the year. Um, you know, Dennis Schroeder was a clunky fit. Marcus Gasol had COVID. I mean, there was like all kinds of crazy stuff going on, but you always knew that whoever they threw out there, these guys were going to try to compete defensively and maybe they would be able to sneak out a win. This year, you just never, I mean, on a night-to-night basis, you never know what we're going to get. You know, like we have losses to, double losses to OKC, right? And like one on the road, one at home, including like blowing a 30-point lead or whatever. But then we like beat Miami, you know what I mean? It's like we beat, uh, we have like a 40 to 8 run. Yeah, the Kings are not very good, but we have like these mo- these glimpses where it's like, oh, they can't kind of do it. Um, and so it's frustrating because a lot of it does feel like effort, okay? And I don't want to necessarily blame the players because there's a reason there's a coach on the bench. You know, it's not just mm-hmm. these, you put the the GM puts together a roster and then sits there and watch these, watches these guys play basketball. Like they, somebody is telling them what to do. Somebody's game planning. This is not like pickup basketball where you, you know, these guys are playing at UCLA in the summer and they just go and they play like, but it feels like pickup basketball. I, that's what I'm saying. It, it like the games feel like such throwaways to these guys sometimes. And, you know, you put, we can all point the blame on a lot of people, but i I frankly, and maybe this is just because I tend to be like more of a front office apologist than a lot of people. But I, I think the coaching has been like the biggest culprit. And I think it's, you know, you can say, well, Rob signed DeAndre, Rob signed Avery Bradley. He did do these things. But Avery Bradley was a 15th man for, frankly, a roster spot we were not yeah, even planning to use. <laughs> like, he was signed the day before the season. We weren't even planning to use that roster spot. We only used it because THT 
had his, you know, had to get surgery and the nun was like, oh, actually, you know, you have this bone bruise and then, you know, whatever. There's like a Malik Monk was banged up coming into the season. Wayne Ellington was banged up pretty soon. Like all this guard depth we had wasn't looking like so much guard depth. Austin Reeves is a brand new rookie. Like, you know, so, okay, justify the signing. Whatever. And he's not guaranteed though. And he's not guaranteed. But it's Vogel's decision to play this guy 30 minutes a game, right? Despite all the numbers and everything showing that he is not providing anything. I mean, it's like somebody posted the stat that blew my mind. But, like, Malik Monk, yeah, he's more of an offensive player. But he scored 22 points off the bench last night against the Kings. And Avery Bradley, the prior three games, had scored two points total as a starter. Okay? And and those are the types of – like, Avery Bradley is – fine defensively he has some big weaknesses by the way that i think are kind of ignored um but he has some things that he does average or slightly above average so on a team that was struggling with defense you could justify putting him in there for spurts to play this guy you know on a team that's the bottom five offense in the nba and play a guy who you can can't even rely on to score you one point on a night to night basis and play that guy 30 minutes, you know, or whatever a game. It's just like completely inexcusable to me. The Deandre Jordan again. Wait, wait, sorry. Before you go to Deandre, the other thing I think that's the most damning about Avery Bradley and why I brought up the non-guaranteed contract part of it all is because when we have to make a buyout market signing, who do you think's going to get cut? It's the dude with the partially guaranteed contract. Maybe you add yes. Deandre Jordan into there too, but what is the point of playing a guy you know won't even be here to yeah. close the season? You're just wasting time. Seriously. And, and, no, you are. And, and, you know, you could ask, you, Frank Vogel might say in response to that, like, oh, well, we don't know if he's not going to be there. And I'm like, well, the, yeah, most likely, okay, because if he is going to be there, that means something went horrifically wrong because he is yeah. he's not contributing. And, and for a team that, like, you know, has been criticized in the past for not paying attention to the analytics, right? It's not even necessarily just analytics with Avery Bradley. It's like you can see it. The guy is like kind of cooked on the perimeter, right? Like he had a good run with us during that season, that championship season. Solid player for us. Did just fine in the starting lineup, but you know, we were also offensively challenged that year. So, you know, it's like now we have a different roster makeup. It doesn't make sense to continue feeding this guy huge minutes. It doesn't make sense. You know, thinking about DeAndre Jordan again, he was the 14th signing. He was only signed because he was traded multiple times. He got waived. We could get him for super cheap. We needed one more just like we already had Dwight. We already had, we knew we we're going to play AD a little more at the five, but we needed one more just big guy, right? Okay, you can make a case. Maybe we should have gone for a Hartenstein or somebody like with more upside who is younger, but whatever. DeAndre's a vet. Like he's a big body. He's very strong. Like let's just go with him, whatever. He's, you think maybe he's not going to play that much. And Vogel makes him a starter and commits to playing him like 15 minutes a game. It's just like completely nuts, right? It's like, yeah, Rob put the players there, but. In my mind, Rondo, Avery Bradley, uh, DeAndre Jordan, these are like 13th, 14th, 15th guys on your bench. These are not guys that you commit from the day one of the season against all and, – and, and by the way, continue for like 20 games <laughs> to like give these guys mm-hmm. significant chunks of minutes. F- finally – 22 games into the season, you call out DeAndre Jordan for his poor defense, starts a fight about it. You know what I mean? But it's like, this is how, what sample size do you need? I mean, there used to be like five, like Vogel during the championship year, it was like five to 10 game stretches we want to get a big enough sample size so we could see what we're, what we're working with. Okay. And he's just committed to DeAndre and Avery Bradley for so long. It's at some level, you have to point the finger at him, right? You know, there's all this talk after we made that 40 to eight run. Oh, well, what changed today? Oh, well, you know, I had to light a fire under him. You, it took you until we were (coughs) 25% through the season to light a fire under like, it's just like the, the decision-making on the coaching level, the rotations, those are things that have like cost us games. I, the most surprising stat I saw yesterday during the Lakers, you know, telecast of this game was we are seven and two in games decided by five points. Isn't that like crazy for a team that only has eleven wins? We are seven and two in games decided by five points. We get blown out all the damn time, and basically, like if we win, it's going to be between like one to nine points, which I think, like you know, is is like. 
you've seen that throughout the season. And when we lose, we get blown out. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's like we there are some things about this team that are working and it just feels like in those games that are we're getting blown out it's just wasting time and wasting time and poor decisions throughout the course of the game that get to you to a point where everybody just gives up okay so if you can talk about lighting a fire but his decision making and his lack of making changes to sort of ignite some energy are kind of at the forefront of what our problems are. You know, he can't rely anymore on going to the bench and plugging in Caruso and plugging in Kuzma. And like, everybody thought like, Oh, these guys, yeah, they're good defenders, but whatever. And like, you know, it was known like, Oh, Caruso and Kuzma, the bench unit, they come in, they give us good defense. that sparks a, they can spark some runs. It's like, no, those are just better players than maybe Avery Bradley or the players he was starting above them. In some cases, he can't fall back on that as much anymore. So it's like, it's just crazy that it's taken him 20 games to just remove this, like, two dead weight, you know, guys from our team. It's just, I don't know. It's nuts. Yeah, he has not made very... His decisions don't make intuitive sense. And you brought up Rondo. It's funny because out of all those three guys, Rondo's the one guy who would actually who could actually change the atmosphere of a game and dynamic of a game, but he's just been sitting until last night. So if you are able to sit Rondo for much of the season, why is it why does it seem like we're held hostage by Avery Bradley and DeAndre Jordan? Two guys who at best, maybe in a six game span, Avery Bradley helped out one game. You know what I'm saying? And it, it, like again, that just shows you the contradictions and hypocrisy and and inconsistencies with what Frank Vogel says and what he does. And um, I think to your point, why I'm not super optimistic about how this season is going, even given the fact that, yes, I know Frank's been dealt a bad hand with the injuries and the weird clunky roster and having guys in and out, LeBron James in and out, all of that, I understand, tough spot. Um, But... As the coach, you should know whether it's fair or unfair. I all, I know for a fact that it's unfair that the coach typically gets scapegoated the first, and if anybody's going to lose a job first, it's going to be the coach, right? But Frank Vogel knows this as the coach, right? And I would argue, if you already know this, that you're going to be the first to be scapegoated, I know it sucks, but if you're going to be the first to lose a job if things go wrong, you have to then make sure that you're perfect in your own execution and process, You need to make sure that you've done everything you could as the coach to be absolved from blame, right? You need to make sure that you've dotted your I's and crossed your T's. And for me, not only has Vogel not done that, the dude's like been writing in Comic Sans or Papyrus this season, and the writing's been ineligible, if that analogy makes any sense to anybody. You know what I'm saying? All to say that I don't think he's, he's, he's not held up his end of the bargain in terms of just showing everybody, look, if you fire me, this is on you because I've done everything that makes sense, right? If he's fired, we can point to legitimate things where it's like, yeah, you probably should have been fired because you were playing Avery Bradley and DeAndre Jordan and also not giving minutes to guys who you know midseason into the playoffs could use these minutes now to develop their own games, their own rhythm, and their own chemistry. I'm mainly talking about Malik Monk, Wayne Ellington, THT. Why are these guys not getting... Why do they have to share minutes with Avery Bradley? I know it's only like 10 to 15 minutes a game, but those are still crucial minutes that these guys could use to gain a rhythm because, again, they are playing next to ball-dominant guys in Westbrook and LeBron James who don't even give them the ball, you know, half the time they're on the court. So any minutes that they can get, they need to get. It shouldn't be going to Avery Bradley, who's perfectly fine not getting the ball for 10-minute stretches when he's out there with Westbrook, you know? So it's, I think it's even come to light even more with how well Malik Monk's been playing recently, right? Where it's just like, dude, why, why have we been toiling in this Avery Bradley, like, DeAndre Jordan cycle for this long? Like, D- Dwight Howard goes out there in one night and totally shifts the energy and balance of the game defensively and he's competing for offensive rebounds even getting you help on that end of the court and he goes out there and says i was a little bit down because you know frank vogel told me i'd be dnp tonight and it's just like dude what are you doing i i I haven't been this frustrated with a coach 
again, since Byron Scott, and it's crazy, but yeah, I think that I think that's the main reason why I'm not super positive, even when guys come back, even when guys are healthy. It's because I feel like Frank Vogel is going to cap uh, this team to some level with his, you know, bad decision making. And I think this doesn't take the onus off of the players. We understand the lackadaisical shifts in effort and momentum and and intensity and whatnot. But at the same time, if they're not being put in positions to succeed as well by the coach, they are more liable to have those lapses in energy and intensity. And right now, the Lakers as a team just look like a bunch of disparate parts operating on their own accord. That includes the big three. While we have seen some cohesion between AD and Westbrook and maybe even Westbrook and LeBron at times, for a majority of these games, within the games, the big three are kind of still doing their own thing. It is pickup basketball for the most part. Those crazy runs that we've been on, last night being the exception, we've maybe sustained for a quarter, right? And for the most part, we are living and dying by these long threes and the decision-making of our primary ball handlers, some of which don't even get the ball because Frank Vogel doesn't give them the ball. I'm talking about Malik Monk and sometimes Carmelo Anthony, et cetera, et cetera. So, um... Yeah, there's a lot of improvement that needs to happen with regards to Frank. I think we've wasted enough time this season. If we can forge ahead with this new direction that he's taken of actually taking DeAndre Jordan out and hopefully Avery Bradley being out for this, maybe it's an extended stretch, I'm not sure, but hopefully that will force... Frank Vogel's hand. I'm not even giving him credit for this, actually. <laughs> um, but at least the DeAndre Dwight shift, if that can become a more consistent thing, then I have better, I guess, hope for what's to come. But yeah, that's why I am not so optimistic about where this season is going because it's felt like we've already watched like 60 games and I'm like, we got to watch 60 more of this? Shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the last thing I'll say about this is you see this with bad teams, okay? There's always, because we've watched many bad teams until LeBron got here, there are stretches throughout the season, particularly early in the season. And I guess where I'm really thinking about is bad teams that maybe people thought were going to be okay. Um, there are always points through the season where optimistic fans and media and whoever are going to say, okay, maybe it was that a turning point and the really bad teams, it's just never a turning point. Right. So I think the key for the Lakers is they've already had a couple of these fake, are is this going to be a turning point situation so far? But we've now won two in a row for the first time in over three weeks, I think is the stat that I saw. Okay. Is this actually a turning point? We had a we had a win at home. We looked like crap, but we did beat the Pistons. We had our first blowout win of the season against the Sacramento Kings. These are not good teams, but are we going to start to see a shift in how this team plays, how this team competes on a night-in, night-out night basis? It has happened. It has been the case that LeBron teams through 20 games have been hovering around 500 before things sort of shifted, right? And so maybe this is not going to be a 60-win team, definitely not going to be a 60-win team this year, but can this team become like a 50-ish win team that is going to, you know, avoid uh, the play-in of hopefully, you know, be in, in the top four in the West to at least secure home court for the first round? Are we at least looking at like that caliber of team? Um, there's still a time to there's still times to change. Right. And, and so hopefully we're not going to just be a bad team where we just, for you know, it's going to be March and we're like, it's, maybe this is a turning point. Right. And, and maybe we are actually hitting that turning point right now. So we'll see. I think there's a little bit of reason to be optimistic, but I'm not holding my breath personally. Yeah. And I'm going to end this episode kind of pessimistically. <laughs> I don't know Ugh. why I'm doing this being such a Debbie downer, but this team has gotten me in this line of thinking of always bitching and moaning. And personally, I hate it, but Look, we're rejoicing over single-digit wins over tank teams. Let's be real, right? That's what's going on right now. We've gotten blown out by tank teams, although maybe the Wolves are legit, so you'd count that as, oh, they're actually a good team. But 
our schedule from here on out, Tommy, gets a lot tougher. Yes. In December, we go on the road for three straight games versus the Mavs, the T-Wolves, and the Bulls. And then we come home to face the Suns right after that three-game road trip. Then we play the Nets on Christmas Day. There's a game against the Spurs in between there when we get back, but that is a, that doesn't look like a good stretch for us. Um, and we've shown that it doesn't matter whether we're on the road or at home. We just We're just a bad team. What's even worse is to close this season... 10 of our last 14 games are on the road. Yeah. So we need to get that 10-game winning streak that uh, Anthony Davis is talking about, like, fast, because we're going to need some sort of a buffer as we continue to try and find ourselves and find our identity. Because, yeah, it's only been a fourth of the way through the season, but, dude, we are running out of time because we have squandered our chance at trying to establish any sort of foundation. I don't care if that was hard to do because of all the guys coming in and out, but you should have established something even without those guys in place. You know, that's why you establish a system, right? Um, Frank Vogel says the guys are starting to pick up the defensive system or whatever. Sure, maybe. But the fact that we have no offensive system to fall back upon is a problem. It has been a problem even before this season. And it's going to continue to rear its ugly head because this was a team that was supposed to be built on its offensive firepower. And so far, we've only seen it maybe in like one to two quarter glimpses a game. Um, But hey, that's that. Even though it's been all terrible because of what's happening around the league and the issues that a bunch of teams are having, we are still afloat somehow. There's still time to turn this thing around, but we need to figure that stuff out now. With LeBron, without LeBron, no Ariza, with Ariza, none, no none, whatever. (laughs) We got to figure it out now. Uh, so with that said, we will catch you guys next time. And hopefully when we when we do, we will be in the midst of that 10-game win streak. So, Tommy, I will let you go. Peace. Later. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.